Hello, and welcome to the Yukon Entrepreneur Podcast Series. I'm your host, Carrie Johnston, and I'm recording today on the traditional territory of Champion and Ajak First Nations in beautiful Dakwakata Haines Junction. And I'm joined today by Inga. Inga, please introduce yourself. Hi there. It's good to see you again, Carrie. Uh, my name is Inga Petri. Uh, I'm joining you from uh, the traditional territories of the Kwanlandan First Nation and Town Kwachan Council uh, here in uh, Whitehorse, Yukon. Um, I'm an independent consultant. I run a consultancy that is national in scope. Um, we've been around, I've been around doing this since 2007. Um, so I guess 15 years now. I uh, started out in Ottawa and when I moved to Whitehorse, you know, the practice simply continued um, as, per, as per normal. So I've been up here now since about 2015. Um, and my practice continues to be national. It continues to, you know, grow um, in terms of the work I do. I think sector-wise, I focus a lot on arts and culture. There's a particular specialization in the performing arts uh, nationally. Uh, in the Yukon, I do other kinds of work as well. Um, so that's a little bit more functional. So I go across various sectors in the Yukon. Um, and my practice basically is that I live at the intersection of marketing research, business strategy, um, and marketing planning. I don't do implementation anymore on marketing, but I do all the thinking required um, to equip people to move forward in what they want to achieve in their in their organizations and in their businesses. Well, thanks, Inga, for joining us today. And thanks for, for coming back. You were one of our participants in season one. So thanks for, yes. for coming back again. Inga, what, what's your first memory of the pandemic? When did you realize, like, this is a major thing that we need to be aware of? Yeah, so first memory and major thing, actually, two different questions. I think the first memory is really these, these strange news reports from China out of Wuhan, which all of a sudden we knew there was a city called Wuhan. Um, but I think, you know, where it became apparent that this is a big deal is probably my, um, my wife runs or was running a restaurant at the time. Uh, here in Whitehorse and uh, March 17th, I believe. So it was right after the weekend where everything changed, but restaurants were still allowed to be open. And March 17th was the last day that she was open. And what she described that night to be like at the restaurant was absolutely heartbreaking and extraordinary. Uh, people basically came to eat to support the business. Uh, it wasn't so much about going out and having a good time. Uh, there were all kinds of takeout orders, uh, people were ordering, but they were really like, you know, nobody wanted to touch anything all of a sudden. Like it was just this, you know, people you know really well, but this level of trust just was gone all of a sudden. Um, so I think that's probably, you know, that's really the moment where, you know, notwithstanding the cancellation of the Arctic Winter Games, um, that was, you know, a, a, sort of the newsworthy moment of the prior week. But that really is the indelible moment for me where you're just realizing how big a deal this is going to be. Mm -hmm. And what have you learned about your business model over the past two years? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, the pandemic has created all kinds of winners and losers, um, and they're often sectorally based. I'm an independent consultant. Um, I already had a practice that was predominantly digitally delivered. Um, so in terms of, you know, the, like the, the question is about the business model, right? Um, it's a brilliant business model because it scales really well to the digital world. 
being able to, and I was already a remote worker for the last 25 years. Uh, my clients are often in places that I don't live in. So to me in my practice, you know, the, the biggest difference really is the acceptance my clients all of a sudden had of doing work digitally, 100% digitally. Um, I, haven't really, I haven't really traveled at all in the last two years uh, for work, which I used to do. I used to be on a plane every, you know, three weeks or so uh, going somewhere in this country or coming back from somewhere. So, you know, I think depending on where you're sitting, uh, in this time, you actually can have done much better um, or not at all. Like it's been a very stark division. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about my clients and their experience too, as, as part of this, of course, which is quite different being in the arts, as you might imagine. Yeah. And well, that is my next question. What are you learning about your customer? Yeah, it's been tough, you know, I mean, in the performing arts sector, depending on where you are in the country, they had to completely shut down for a long period of time. And the performing arts model is predicated on people getting together in places, rubbing shoulder to shoulder, having extraordinary on sometimes just regular kind of experiences, artistic experience and sharing those. You know, so the idea of breathing the same air is intrinsic to the sector. And it's been incredibly difficult to, to reimagine that model uh, in a way that sustains it. Um, so, you know, I think there's organizations that have basically been shuttered for two years and they're figuring out how to come back now. Some of those are volunteer-based, um, so it wasn't necessarily salaries affected. Others that have salaries have obviously been able to use supports from, from governments uh, as, as much as they've been available. So there has been a lot of protection in the sector. Um, the devastating statistic, however, is that about two thirds of the workforce in, in the live arts sector is no longer in this workforce, right? So notwithstanding the supports, uh, there is an incredible decimation that has happened and it's not clear what exactly that will mean or how many people will come back into the live arts um, sort of framework. Um, so lots of challenges ahead. Mm, yeah, I didn't realize it was two thirds. That's a that's a big number. It's the biggest of them all. Right. Uh, yeah. It's bigger than hospitality, I think, even. Um, so it's yeah, it's devastating. Um, there's also, as as you might imagine, there's a very strong connection in certain parts of the country between tourism and performing arts and festivals. So it's been like a perfect storm in a way. Um, where where all where all of the key pieces have been affected on an individual level, you know the proverbial actor who is a waiter, right? So for for a number of people who've always had more than one job who are also working in the arts, their second and third jobs being in service industries uh, has also weren't available. So so those folks are in a really dire place, and I think many had to look at alternatives. And the question really now is how many of them will stick with those alternatives that they've used to cobble together a living? Um, mm. So that's, yeah, lots of question marks there. Mm. You know, leadership, as business owners, leadership's inherent in all that we do. What are you, what are you learning about leadership over the past two years? <clears throat> yeah, you know, resiliency is something that we talk a lot about. Um, I think in, in one way, I understand that around the mental health issue, uh, to be resilient in the face of adversity, kind of a mental health 
you know, resiliency. In another way, it's simply about, you know, you got to have enough money in the bank to pay your bills. <laughs> there's no resilience if you can't pay your bills, <laughs> right? So I think there's, there's, there's certain leadership traits that have done really well in this, where, you know, people are able to still exhale. They're not just in this crisis mode all the time, even though this has been a continuous crisis, uh, particularly in, in, in the performing arts and festival sector. And to figure out how to do some different things. So I had spent perhaps eight years prior to COVID talking about digitization in the arts, digitization in the performing arts, and what does that mean? It's not obvious what that means uh, at all. Um, with COVID, you know, there is a number of people that all of a sudden went like, I want it, I need it, let's figure it out. And other people just did what was available to them and sort of tried to get to the next day. So there's a real difference in leadership where you're trying to figure out what the opportunity is moving ahead still, as opposed to just what is the immediate crisis response. And that's not necessarily a skill set we're super well honed in, <laughs> especially in these sort of really difficult, difficult pieces. So there's, I think there's a, there's a, there's a number of people I work with that really exhibit that kind of ability to to do two things at the same time, right? To kind of get to the next day, but to also think about, you know, what is the lasting change out of this experience? And how do we make sense of that? And how do we build something that is self-sustaining uh, in, that, in that hybrid, perhaps hybrid world, mm -hmm. um, including both digital experiences and these in-person, you know, awesome, awesome times we actually get together and literally breathe the same air. Mm. You know, we've all had to adapt to this new normal. Has there been any adaptations that you've been really proud of in, in your business? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, so one of the challenges that my uh, my clients have is, as, as you may know, let, let me put it this way. As you may know, there's hardly a business that's a bricks and mortar business that has succeeded as a digital business. So it's not bookstores or booksellers, right, that have the most successful online bookstores. It's Amazon, the technology company. You know, it's not labels and musicians that somehow are in charge of streaming music. It's technology companies called Spotify and iTunes, right, back in the day. Um, so there is a real challenge with doing both and, you know, trying, trying to figure out how to move along in creating digital experiences that are worthwhile having while also still being dedicated to live is really, really hard. So I think, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunity, um, but leveraging that and figuring out is actually not obvious. There is no easy pathway to it. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges people in amongst my clients have is if they start to embrace digital too much, they start to look like a media company. <laughs> They're no longer in the performing arts. So lots to navigate uh, in that. And none of that is, is particularly straightforward or simple. I hope I answered your question. Um, yeah, no, there might've been something else. The, the, other, the other piece I guess I wanna mention is, um, there is there's been a couple of profound social movements um, that have happened um, in terms of Black Lives Matters, you know, sort of having a reinvigoration of, you know, the importance of, of those conversations, the Me Too movement, uh, basic respect in the workplace, uh, 
you know, less exploitative ways of relating to each other when it comes to making things happen, uh, paid work, volunteer work, all of that. I think I'm, I'm now doing more projects where equity, diversity and inclusion or truth and reconciliation concepts around indigenization are far more important than they were before COVID. Hard to say whether it would have happened regardless. Uh, there certainly has, you know, it's, it's not the only thing that's opened people's eyes. Um, but I'm, I'm very hopeful that, that those who are really doing the deep work around that, that the lasting impacts will be there. And that we do figure out how to be with each other in much better ways um, mm. than, than we have been. Yeah. The, um, the public health measures have been in place for quite some time, sometimes being in mm -hmm. and sometimes being released and then coming back again, which have you found to be the most challenging over this past couple of years? You know, and in my, in my, in my own practice as a consultant, none of them. Um, I have a home-based office. I already, you know, I already did a lot of online meetings. Um, so much of my work was already in a disembodied, you know, delivered in a disembodied fashion, so to speak. Uh, so for my business, there, there really has been no downside because, I mean, there just isn't. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a format that, that I operate in. If, if I had been a much larger company with a bunch of, you know, with a location and a bunch of staff, you know, there would have been different challenges trying to go digital, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just not my, that's just not my scenario. I think on my client side, you know, the, the, the there, there is a place where by, you know, sort of some of those, by, by shutting down, by making, you know, vaccination mandatory in order to go to restaurants or to go to, to, to venues, public venues of any sort, you know, in different parts of the country have diff taken different attitudes, even as an interim measure, that does seem to instill a level of continuous fear amongst audiences that I think will be harder to overcome for some of those audiences than others. So that notion of somehow at this point in time, the idea that simply saying those are no longer required isn't going to magically make people reappear um, in, in places that are, that are predicated on gathering in a space with others. Okay. And like I say, it, it cuts across lots of different things. The conferencing world will be affected as well, right? Uh, those kinds mm -hmm. of events. Uh, it's, not just, it's not just, you know, leisure and recreation. I think in the business side, you'll see a lot of that as well. So I think that's something we have to really grapple with, right? Fear-based messaging over two years has done something in our brains. <laughs> And reversing that is not easy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that is going to be the task ahead, I think. Mm -hmm. Have you accessed any of the, excuse me, pandemic-related supports, the sick leave benefits, or anything? Oh. No, no, not, not, not at all. I mean, that yeah. simply is not a, that wasn't a requirement for where I was at. Um, I, I did have the opportunity to participate as as a mentor <laughs> in some of those, like particularly the. The pivot program that uh, I think innovation entrepreneurship uh, as part of Yukon University was was leading with lots of public support and the Elevate program. So we actually were able to do some really interesting work um, with with some organizations in that. So I've very much been on the other side of of that equation. Hmm. Going forward, how are you thinking about your business differently? Where are you seeing opportunity? Yeah, I mean, you know, so much of my practice. Uh, especially in the arts, but but outside of the arts as well, is I'm 
Some people would consider me an expert in the digital world. I consider myself perhaps an expert in the digital world as it relates to audiences. <laughs> There's many aspects of the digital you know, world that I don't really play in. Um, so I think there is, you know, all of that, that entire space is all opportunity to me. Um, I do a lot of work there today. We're, we're working on, you know, developing real business models, um, trying to figure out whether hybrid organizations can, can be generated at this time. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of really good work that can happen there. Um, from a standpoint of, you know, my, my own practice, uh, it's a continue. It's a continuation of work I've been, I've been doing for uh, for the last you know decade or so. From the standpoint of my clients, it's revolutionary, right? Uh, I think they've learned a lot about where their markets might be if they go digital. They're seeing overlaps with their current their audiences they had coming to theaters or coming to festivals, but they also see a pretty wide range of brand new people that had never engaged with them. So I think there is an inkling of, you know, brand new kinds of opportunities, how to, how to generate revenue from those is mm -hmm. a bit tricky, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot more good work that'll happen. And that, that will also, I think there'll be some halo effects that if we can figure some of that out in the most affected sectors, that'll, there'll be some you know, learning that others can benefit from as well. Mm -hmm. Have you taken up any new skills to kind of better position yourself? You know, personally, personally, not so much. I do a ton of training around digital literacy, digital intelligence, making sense of the digital world. And, you know, one of the projects, there was a three-year three year long project that I was leading around called Making Tomorrow Better, um, taking digital action in the arts. Mm -hmm. um, that project started out as a bricks and mortar, you know, traveling across the country to meet with people face to face because that's a better way to learn. With COVID, all of that went online and we ended up reaching far more people that way. Um, and I think there is, a, there is a neat way in which the conversation, um, the readiness to talk about some of these conversations has really shifted in, in good ways. Um, my own, my own practice demands, you know, when you teach, there's nothing like teaching to keep you sharp. <laughs> so my own practice demands that I stay abreast and up to date on all these, you know, things. And I, like I say, primarily, I do that on the audience facing side, search engines, how websites work, what a web presence is, as opposed to the, you know, the other side of that might be, you know, the back office applications, what project management system do you want to use in your own organization or something like that? I don't really play much in that, on that side. It's really been mostly audience facing. That's part of, you know, part and parcel of my marketing background, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's what, what, what I know to be true is that arena has been changing and evolving so rapidly. Mm -hmm. It's quite hard to know that what you know is all you need to know. Right. Um, even even for me, and I generally feel like I know what I'm looking for. Um, so there's lots of reading, lots of, you know, exploring and a, a bunch of randomness just to make sure I'm not missing the boat on, on important things, um, which is always part of part of what I need to do as a consultant, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been a you know destabilizing time for for world economy, for the Yukon economy, as we sort of enter into this phase of, of rebuilding of, you know, mm -hmm. What are you paying attention to? You know, there's there there's a there's a few issues uh, that we need to decide about as a society. <laughs> um, 
in, in addition to you know basic concepts around equity, diversity, and inclusion, I think we need to we need to really think about what kind of work we value to what degree. When I recognize that grocery store workers are frontline workers that are taking significant risks to deliver a critical service to all of us, maybe I need to rethink the pay scales those people receive. Maybe I need to rethink you know, how I value that kind of work. In a place like the Yukon, we also need to think about a couple of other issues and perhaps much more broadly than we have been. One of them is housing. As you know, <laughs> there's a lot of pain around housing. You know, scarcity has generated incredibly high property values. Um, and, uh, you know, we know the territory is, you know, the fastest growing place in Canada. The census just came out, you know, 12, more than 12% growth in our population. So um, that hasn't been absorbed properly. <laughs> we need to really think about that. So there's lots of implications for the kind of economy and the kind of diversification of economy we can have if we can't house people here. Uh, typically, economic development hinges on salaries staying in the territory. <laughs> so I can outsource, absolutely. But if it doesn't stay here, who, where's the benefit really go? The, the other piece I think that we need to really think about is, and, and I say that in part because I do so much work digitally, is yes, we're catching up. No, yes, our internet is improving would be the better way to put it. But the internet in the South and in Europe and in Asia is 5G networks now. So we're not in fact catching up. We're not even keeping pace, uh, even though there's a little bit more fiber in the territory. Um, there has been no diligent conversation about the need to elevate our, our, our connectedness to the rest of the world by using the contemporary standards that the rest of the world is using. So we are gonna be falling massively behind unless 5G networks become a thing up here, not in 10 years from now, because in 10 years from now, the world will have 6G. <laughs> so every, every decade is a new generation. And, and, and part of the, and the challenge is this, you know, if you're a Dawson City filmmaker and you need to get your film edited somewhere in, I don't know, Vancouver or Toronto or somewhere in the States, whoever you're using for, for editing, you need to actually put your film on a reel on a plane because you don't have the internet capacity to actually upload it, uh, right? That, that's like unfathomable. Um, what 5G is going to be enabling is that, you know, those Netflix movies we all watch, you'd be able to download one of those onto your hard drive in mere seconds, not in eight minutes as 4G is, or in a couple of hours, which is 3G. So when the speed of the internet, you know, is that much more rapid and we're not keeping up, that's going to eliminate all kinds of opportunities for a much more diversified economy because people will simply not be able to live here and work but we'll be able to outsource work to other people outside of the territory, right? So I think that's something that we need to think about, you know, critically uh, and, and, not, and not in a facile way where we just say, well, our internet is getting better without recognizing how much it's changing elsewhere. Even these uh, podcasts, low bit rate, you know, half an hour to an hour tops. And if I upload it, I have to do it at night. Yes, I, I often just send the, the cloud link to somebody who's living in Whitehorse to to upload because it will cripple my internet for the rest of the day Absolutely. to try to upload it during business hours. And that's, you know, 
this is a small facet of you know art and media but uh that that is the extent of it yeah exactly and podcast files you know if it was just a podcast just the voice they're quite small but as soon as you add video everything changes (laughs) and video has become the standard (laughs) it's no longer words on the internet it's lots of moving pictures and and things of that nature exactly i've got a dog who's just walked in and decided to interrupt here sorry um (laughs) Inga, uh, any advice for emerging entrepreneurs? Yeah, lots of advice. You know, I think there's there's this whole um, notion where, you know, follow your passion, the money will follow. Eh, that can happen if you're lucky. Um, passion is good in business, but it's even better if you have a business plan. If you actually think about, you know, the relevance of whatever it is that you groove on. If you can think about, you know, where a market is and what it actually takes um you know just putting passion and energy into a thing isn't actually you know enough i think we we sometimes do a disservice to people um trying to build something new when we allow them to do that without knowing the full picture part of that full picture is canada revenue agency and what it demands so far too many people through the pandemic we've seen that i did a survey a while back for the whitehorse chamber early on in the pandemic And I added a question about, you know, the kind of stresses that businesses were under. And there was a remarkable number that basically identified Canada Revenue Agency um, as one of the big threats to them, basically meaning that they were behind in paying their taxes. They weren't trying to dodge them. They were just behind, right? And there's a, a, many people don't pay enough attention to the entire system that that they're working in. And I think the pandemic has shown us, you know, the, the great liability that that generates for some for some business owners. So you got to actually understand that when you get a letter from them, open it. <laughs> this is not one you get to ignore because <laughs> it doesn't make anything better. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so I think that it gives you a bit of a continuum. Right. So I don't necessarily think that everybody needs a lawyer and an accountant to start, you know, to do something in the world. But you've got to figure out how to understand, you know, all the requirements um, that you're actually subject to. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece is a mindset issue. You know, entrepreneurs tend to be, you know, the cup half full people. <laughs> there's everything is opportunity. Everything is, you know, everything is like there's this positive lens that that we sometimes just apply to everything. And it is, in fact, useful to recognize that that might generate a blind spot where you might make business decisions um, that aren't you know, based on the full reality of a situation that you find yourself in, but that might be based on you know, um, positive thinking. <laughs> and sometimes that manifests, but sometimes you know, that actually generates a hard no for you to be able to proceed. And you weren't aware of that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, I mean, I realize I'm a strategist, therefore I'm a planner, therefore I tend to advocate for it. Um, <laughs> so I'm a little biased here. <laughs> um, you know, but there is a balance somewhere between, you know, taking action and keeping moving, but also tempering that with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of understanding, understanding mm-hmm. competitive landscape, understanding, you know, ways to get support that, that are actually useful in your business and, uh, and ending up in a good place. Right, mm-hmm. not not in inadvertent, strange places that you have a hard time getting out of. Mm-hmm. Those are a few mm-hmm. few things for you to think about. Yeah, have you had any shifts in your worldview? Ways that you're thinking about things differently from the pandemic? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big question. Uh, worldview. Wow. Um, perhaps a reinforcement <laughs> more than more than a dramatic shift. Um, I think. You know, as, as, I, as I mentioned, I spent eight years trying to get a sector that is not particularly interested in digitization to figure something out about digitization. And I wasn't particularly successful at that until COVID hit and it was no longer optional. Um, I, I think that needs and, you know, and I and I get it. It's not like I don't get why people in the life arts might not think that digitization is their salvation. <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of almost counter uh, the intentions. On the other hand, you know, when we need to connect and we want to connect, you know, different people in different places, there is a space for this digital experience. Um, so I think, you know, there is that piece where, you know, trying to be empathetic, trying to be patient, um, but also, you know, making sure that people I work with don't end up feeling like that digital is somehow the answer to everything. It's not. I think we need to be able to have profound conversations and make sure that when we're having these conversations, we know what we're talking about. We know what we're dismissing or we know how we want to play in a slice, but not completely. Right. Um, so I think, you know, tr trying, trying to bring, you know, a great deal of generosity to that conversation and, and not, you know, sort of having, having assumptions about what must be in the world um, is, is helpful. Um, it's not a like I say. It's not exactly a shift in my worldview, um, but I think there's a there's a reinforcing that that these last couple of years have generated around, you know, just you know, it's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You know, is one way to describe that. But not everybody actually needs that water, <laughs> right? Some people need the grass. Some people need something that was along the way, and just maintaining that openness to not have, not end up in another inadvertent one size fits all solution that actually doesn't solve uh, the issues that people are dealing with, but to really stay open-minded around that while making sure that we know what we're talking about. I think that's, that's been an interesting, um, interesting balance to try to, to strike. What's been, uh, what's been keeping you grounded? What's been your wellness practice? <laughs> I, I wish I had a better one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we live in the Yukon, right? So between the between the getting wood and chopping wood, that's always very therapeutic. It <laughs> is. Trying to, you know, trying, I mean, you know, I live in Takini North. So, you know, I look at a park right across and there's lots of wilderness right behind the house, basically. Uh, so outdoors is always the answer um, to me. And I wish I had a bit more time to uh, to spend there. So I'm still looking for that balance. Mm -hmm. uh, at this time in particular, where work-life work, work -life balance has been very much in favor of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. and a heck of a lot less in favor of the other parts that make up life. So I'm, uh, I'm keep working at it. Certainly uh, working on Zoom and, and ha having all these online meetings, it's amazing. Like the, the, you know, it would have been a packed calendar to try to move around to all these different places and meetings in one day. So it, yeah. it's truly amazing the amount that we're able to pack into one day. And um, absolutely never I mean, possible before yeah i mean this morning you know i started my day talking to some clients in nova scotia um this evening uh, i'm going to be spending my time talking to people in moncton new brunswick 
Um, you know, there's lots of time shifting that's possible. Physically, I would never be able to do that while I'm also speaking to you here in Whitehorse, right? Or in, yeah. in Haines Junction. Um, so, you know, I mean, in, in the past, it's, it's quite fascinating. And, you know, in, in pre-COVID, I would, you know, my national practice would be expressed in some years I would predominantly work in Ontario. Other years I would work predominantly maybe in BC. Other years I might be predominantly, you know, in the North. Now it's all of it all of the time. You know, over in 2021, I literally had client work happening in every single territory and every province except for one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that physically that would not be possible to accomplish. So there is, you know, there is inadvertent upside to this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I want to I want to stay excited about about that and sort of the the knowledge that I get to accumulate by working with people in so many different places, you know, during this time in particular, there, there, there's, there's things I know that not many other people know. Everybody knows their own contacts, but they don't know much about, you know, sort of the rest of the, the sector and, and other places. And there's quite a bit of value that that can generate to feedback into, you know, whether that's funding agencies and what they're thinking about, or just, you know, our, our colleagues who are working, who are working in, in arts and culture to sort of see, the sector, you know, perhaps more clearly and see what people in different places are, are thinking about. It, it, it hasn't been a completely uniform experience, right? Uh, yeah. In terms of the shutting down or degrees off and, and different choices in different places. So there is still, you know, there's always been places with lots of hope <laughs> and being able mm-hmm. to inject that into some of those conversations has actually been really cool, right? Mm-hmm. Inga, any closing thoughts before we end the interview today? Yeah, I mean, you know, thank you for this opportunity to speak with you again. Um, you know, I'm as, as I as I often find myself saying uh, in to my colleagues in the arts who live in incredibly, you know, financially precarious situations, stitching gigs together, doing other jobs, non-arts jobs, being challenged, you know, to do the creative work they're really meant to do. I keep reminding them that there's no trouble at all finding money for consultants like myself but we seem to have lots of trouble valuing properly the creative work, the thinking work, the outputs that artists and arts organizations generate. I think we need to figure out a way to shift that. <laughs> not, not so that I make less, but so that we all make a reasonable living. And I think that's something that, that's not gonna be easy, um, but I think I'm very hopeful that, you know, we're not wasting this crisis called COVID. And all it has shown us is what's possible when we essentially, for a short amount of time, have a universal basic income, <laughs> for instance, right? Like that was a good thing. <laughs> I'm not sure that it detracted from anything. Yes, it could have been implemented better, of course. But, but I think there's now examples we didn't have before that actually could really move the needle in making sure we value the right things more often at a level that allows people to have decent lives. You know, where they have the things they need and not having this amount of stress and the mental health challenges that come with that. And especially in the arts, they're well documented. Um, You know, levels of anxiety 10 times higher than the regular population. Uh, Suicide ideation, five times the rate. Uh, Attempted suicide, twice as many. Um, It almost feels like it matches maybe or is close to what indigenous communities experience. uh, Northern indigenous communities sometimes experience um and it's wow right like we need to stop doing this to each other 
<laughs> you know, we need to find ways to, to, to live together in good ways that actually serve people um, mm -hmm. and serve all of us much more equitably. So well, that, that is my hope for not wasting this crisis. <laughs> well, I mean, there's good conversations happening about universal sick leave benefit yep. here in the territory, right? And, and yes. that is a product of, of this, yep. you know, this time and the, the benefit that that has had. Absolutely. And we recognize that it's actually important to be able to afford to stay home when you're, when you're sick, right? Because um, the upside is actually not nearly as big as we've always assumed. Um, so I think those are those are some lessons that I'm very hopeful that we can figure out how to actually do something about, you know, sort of on some of those, you know, on, on a systemic level to make yeah. things better. Uh, I think that's really, really helpful. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Inga. All right. Well, thanks so much. Good to see you again, Carrie. Hey, bye bye. Bye bye.